uh, an overview of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, uh, talking about uh, what to do with liberties, you know, being free in Christ. And so you're coming in, if this is your first week, on the very last one of those in this kind of like mini-series. But I was doing that because uh, of, of what's going on in my life, you know, church-wise over these last uh, eight weeks, getting everything ready for uh, all this uh, step-up stuff. So we're going to, uh, we'll finish this up today, and then we're going to jump into, actually, is this on? Do I not need this? Okay. Yeah. Um, after this week, we are finally starting our study of Deuteronomy, which, uh, which probably won't start with Deuteronomy. <laughs> because the more I was reading, I've been reading Deuteronomy, and the more I've read Deuteronomy, the more I'm like, we should probably look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers real quick before we dive into Deuteronomy. <laughs> Not, I mean, just like real quick. <laughs> but it assumes, you know, I mean, the, the whole thing is Moses there on the plains of Moab talking to the Israelites who walked through this stuff. And I just feel like, you know, I mean, we could definitely put those things in there as we walk through it. But if we just have the context, you know, take a couple of weeks. Let's look at what they just walked through, what they went through. It makes the words make so much more sense. But what's funny is actually this week with this First Corinthians 10, it's almost like Paul's doing that. I mean, he's taking, it's like this real brief look at, the, uh, of, at Israel um, and saying, I mean, these, this was written as examples for us. So... I almost felt like, this is neat. It's just like the Lord's perfect providence that 1 Corinthians 10 is like our little precursor into Deuteronomy before we jump into Deuteronomy. Uh, but all that being said, uh, I, we need to pray. I totally forgot. Kemper, you the man. <laughs> all right. So um, we're going to uh, pray first. So this is just a time basically where we share things openly that you would like for other people to be praying uh, for you during the week. Um, so and all my... I see pens out, people that are writing these things down. It's just a way for us to pray for one another right now and then to remember you during the week. So if there's anything you'd like to share openly for us to pray for. Okay, you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10. So that's what we're going to look at today. And I do have a, let's see here. All right. It's kind of slow this morning. Here we go. So I I hope this has been a helpful study. I hope this has been uh, a blessing. I I have benefited a lot through this. Uh, It's helped uh, me examine the things in my life and uh, and just really to, uh, I don't know, to kind of lock in on some things that just easily become loose ends or things that you, you know, you start with a strong conviction and then over time it just becomes a habit, which is good that, that these things become part of life, but then sometimes you can, you can almost lose your parameters or you have to strive to bring your thought process and your reasoning back underneath scripture and, and why do we do what we do and, um, and why do we have the convictions that we have? What are, you know, how do, how do our liberties play out uh, in the Christian life and, and are we living in a way that is both honoring and glorifying to Jesus Christ, is that our motivation, and are we living in a way that is striving to prefer others over ourselves, to love others in the way uh, that we um, we live uh, in light of the liberties that we have in Christ, and so big picture, um, what's going on here is Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth has asked him uh, about things about meat sacrificed to idols, and so Paul takes this question that the Corinthians presented to him and uses it as an opportunity to talk about Christian liberties. Um, and so, a real quick overview of of where we're at, and uh, and and this is a, a a unit from 1 Corinthians 8 through 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 is Paul answering this question. Um, and so in 1 Corinthians 8, one of the things that Paul tells them, and one of the ways that we kind of stated this, is that, that love lays aside liberty for others. He talked about the fact that meat sacrificed to, to idols is just meat. I mean, you, they have good doctrine. They have good understanding. It's just meat. There are gods. You know, these idols are nothing. And so it's just meat. But he says, in your understanding, in your knowledge... Uh, even though you might have good doctrine, you don't want to, in your pride, then destroy your brother who struggles with these things. And so then we talked about how love develops others. He's like, even though you know that an idol is nothing, you know there is only one God, uh, there are some that eating this meat would cause them to stumble. And so then he brings it back down to, even though this is a liberty of yours in Christ, you want to make sure that in the expression of your liberty, you're not 
crushing your brother. And then he says, you know, that, that we talked about not harming uh, one another in our liberties and making sure that the, the point was that you submit to one another in love. And Paul uh, summarizes this little section here before he moves into the next part by saying this. He says, through your knowledge, uh, again, good doctrine, understanding is just meat. He says, but through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And again, it's coming back down to the understanding of Christ's love for him, what Christ has done for your, your brother in Christ, and making sure that you're striving to love them and, and be submissive uh, in that way. And he says, and so by sinning against the brother and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. So the meat itself is, is neutral, if you want to say that. Your ability or liberty to eat the meat, totally fine in Christ, but the way that you're doing this is now both a sin against your brother in the Lord, which becomes a sin against Christ. And so he says, this is Paul's example, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again for this purpose, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. And that's the main point there. Paul's basically saying, if I knew that this would cause another brother in Christ to stumble, then forget, forget meat. It's just like lay that liberty aside out of a preference and a love for others. And, and, and he uses himself as an example here. This is what I would do in that situation. Uh, and that's important because in 1 Corinthians 4, he's already told the Corinthians to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And the very end, 1 Corinthians 11, he's going to say it again. Imitate me, follow my example as I follow Christ. And so he's, and he's using his example, not based on his words here in this letter, but the way that he lived his life for a year and a half when he was in Corinth, uh, beginning that church and leading that church, and the things that he sacrificed himself out of a love for them, in preference for them. And so they have a tangible example in Paul of how he lived there. So that's the first thing he says. And then in chapter 9, he, he goes from that last verse. Again, remember there's no verses and chapters in this letter to them, the original letter. He, he continues to take this example of himself, and he begins to talk about the way that he lived when he was in Corinth. Uh, he talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14, how when he was in Corinth, he, he didn't take any money from the church. In fact, he was taking money from other churches to support him. And he was also working full time at night in order to preach the gospel, to plant the churches uh, with, with no hindrance. He didn't want them to have uh, any thought in their head that he was doing this for his own monetary gain or his own uh, you know, sustenance or like some charlatans robbing the churches uh, uh, of their of their resources, uh, you know, by by calling on them to to give, and that's the way to uh, to uh, to to support God or whatever. And so he basically gave up his right to be paid as a minister or, or a missionary or an apostle of Christ, and he even appeals to the fact that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, sent by Christ to this place. But he gave up his right to be paid for their sake, and so that's what he tells them in fifteen through eighteen that love will even give up things that aren't even liberties. They're, they're, they're things that the Lord would command or demand. And he even brought in Deuteronomy to talk about how the Lord says that you should take care of those who bring the truth of God. Just like in Israel, they took care of the priests. The priests were the ones that got paid uh, by the tithe. They received the offerings and those things sustained the priests. Um, and he basically says in the same way, you should be sustaining me. You should be taking care of me. I should be able to bring my family and my wife. And you should be able to do those things. But he said... But I laid that aside so that there would be no hindrance to the gospel. And he even talked about how it was a joy of his to lay aside what belonged to him or what even the Lord would say, you need to do this for him. Uh, and it, it, wasn't a, um, it, was, it was a joy for him to, to give up his rights and to serve them in that way. And so again, I, I threw this up here. here. It's, all of this is sandwiched in these uh, these uh, him begging them to, to imitate him. You know, as you're striving to live amongst yourselves and to prefer one another, look back at the example of what I did when I was there with you. Think of how I gave up these things and, and you witnessed this with your eyes. And you were willing to give up, he even says at one point, you were willing to, to give up your eyesight to help me and to love me. You know, and so he's like, so now extend that same love to one another and stop looking out for your own interests first. And so the very end of chapter 9, he says this. He says, though I am free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all. And his point in this is he submits or he enslaves himself to others at all costs 
for the sake of their souls and for the sake of the gospel of Christ. That's, the, that's what he's aiming at. It's not just laying down your preference because you love someone. It's laying down your preference because you love them and you want to, if they're a brother in Christ, to be continually sanctified in Christ. And if they're not in the Lord, that you would give up anything for the sake of their soul. So it comes back down out of, uh, to a love of other people, both lost and saved, uh, in imitation of Christ for the sake of the gospel. And that's what he says here at the very end of 9. He's like, I made myself a slave to all that I may win more. The Jews came like a Jew to win Jews, those under the law. I, I lived as one under, uh, not being under the law, so that I might win those who are uh, under the law. I'm sorry, under the law. Then those who are without the law, as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. And so that was the, that was the motivation. Paul's saying, you, in, in the same way that I did this for you when I came to Corinth, think like that's how we ought to live towards one another. You'd be willing to give up anything, anything, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the soul of another person, so that you may be able to, to win them to Christ. Uh, and then he goes on to say, I mean, don't you know, you know, he refers back to the, the uh, Isthmian games that they had there in Corinth. And he's like, you know how athletes that come to these games every other year, they exercise self-control in all things. They do this to win a perishable wreath. But we're, we're striving for something so much greater than a, a wreath made out of pine needles. He's like, we're striving for the, the, the eternal souls of, of the brethren. And he's like, and there's just so, something so much greater that we're... we're, we're running after here in this life, but he takes that analogy that fits the culture and says, so here's what he says he does. He disciplines his body. He makes it his slave so that after he's preached to others, he himself will not be disqualified. And this leads into what we're going to talk about this week. So he's expending himself for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others. But one of the other things he's doing is understanding his own weaknesses and understanding his own uh, um, uh, flesh and, and it's it's how we're prone towards sin. He would he wants to make sure that he is not ex, not not living according to his liberties or living in a way that in the end would become something that would disqualify him. And after all of this, he would be useless to the Lord. And that's what we're going to get at today. And this is a a, um, a, a a big part of this. You know, we've everything we've talked about so far is how our love for one another should govern our liberties. How our love for Christ should govern our liberties and our freedoms. Though we are free in Christ and we have freedom in Christ, there are other people involved which should, should have a bearing on how we live our life. And we're striving to live our life in a way that glorifies Him, that is submissive to others, that prefers others over ourselves. But then Paul says, basically here, don't overestimate you. Though you are free and though you have liberties, we have many examples in our lives of people that we know that have either walked away from the Lord or maybe even be in the Lord, but they have in some way discredited or disqualified themselves from being useful to God because of liberties that may have become more than liberties along the way. And now this is part of of their life. And so that's what we want to talk about today. When our liberties actually become idolatry. And this is the last little warning for Paul. So again, you got to think about the question of why the Corinthians are writing this. And they're saying, listen, we're free in Christ now. We've been born again. We're, we're not under the law. We're able to eat this meat. And he's like, absolutely. You can eat the meat. It's just meat. And at the same time, there's others involved. And at the same time, make sure that you're not becoming overconfident in your strengths and thinking that this is a liberty when in fact it's beginning to become enslavement. Um, And that's what we want to look at today. And so, like I said, we've been talking about laying aside our liberties, refusing our rights in order to love and to prefer others, um, and how our liberties and our rights affect others, and that should always be a part of our thinking as we, as we uh, 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 express our liberties or, or enjoy the things that God has blessed us with. And do remember, they are liberties, and we talked about that. There's many things to enjoy in this life. But this section, like I said, is how easily and quickly liberties or rights can actually become idolatry. And all of us are easily capable of this, and the Bible is full of examples that remind us of this. And so how your liberties uh, affect you matters. 
Um, gray things can become black things in our life. Neutral things can become sinful things in our life. Uh, and when our love for ourselves and our freedoms begins to lead our decision, rather than our love for others in Christ, when this begins to happen, we begin to slide into this realm of liberties becoming sinful or liberties becoming idolatry. And again, we always need to be checking our life. I remember uh, listening to John MacArthur one time, a long time ago, say sometimes he will just deny himself, like he'll want ice cream and he'll drink water instead of eat ice cream just to make sure that he has control of his appetites. You know, and it's just, it was a kind of a funny example, but we should be doing this with everything. Ice cream is not sinful, but I want to make sure that I'm in control of my appetites. I want to make sure I'm in control of my freedoms and my liberties. Um, one of the quotes, I don't have it up here, but he said uh, in his commentary over uh, this chapter, um, he said, the misuse of liberty can disqualify us from effective service to Christ. So today what we're doing is we're taking our, not, we're taking, not taking our focus off of others, but all of a sudden what we're doing is we're looking at ourselves and we're assessing our liberties and we're going, are these hang- things hindering me from effective ministry? You know, Paul just said, I would give up anything for the gospel of Christ. I would uh, give up any liberty to win some. But sometimes our focus is not on the mission that we're here on earth to do. We're not focused on uh, uh, making disciples and, and, and uh, uh, striving to teach others the truth of Christ for their sanctification and for them to grow in Christ. Our, our focus becomes just ourself and what our freedoms as Christians are. And we're already off mission just because we're, we're not... We're not uh, being faithful to do what we're here to do. Um, and it, when we're in that place and we're just living life and we're just talking about our liberties, it's easy to become uh, disqualified from effective service. Um, I remember reading one time uh, someone say, and I don't know where, and I'm just paraphrasing this. He basically can't live too far uh, from the edge of freedom and not fall into sin. And I think that's just something that's always stuck with me. You know, and we always talk about you don't want to get right up to the, the edge. You know, our tendency is to ride that line of, of what, what is sinful and get right up to the edge of it. And we talk about this in the youth group all the time. But we as adults do the same thing. You know, we, we don't want to get too close to the edge and all of a sudden we fall into sin. The defense of liberty may be an indication that there's an overconfidence in our strength. And so, again, we do have liberties and we do have freedoms. No one's denying that, and that's clear in Scripture. And Paul makes that clear both at the very front of this argument and the very end. Today, we're going to see him again say, the meat is nothing. But what you do with the meat is definitely something. Um, And so, if you're looking at this and you find yourself defensive of your habits, uh, you're protecting your freedoms and your loves... That could be an indication that you need to do one of those examinations and make sure that these things that are your liberties or your freedoms or things that you enjoy and love are not becoming your identity. And we're not being reckless or presumptuous with our liberties because it's dangerous to be overconfident about these things. And all of a sudden you find yourself following the pathway or the pattern that we've seen in Scripture and you've probably seen in your own life uh, with, with, with friends. Uh, we, we probably all know examples of people. I know I know a handful of people that have indulged in liberties for too long or taken it too far, and it's had disastrous consequences either for their family or for their reputation or even their ability uh, to minister. Um, Again, we're not talking about a loss of salvation. I mean, that can happen. There are those who fall away from the Lord or fall away from the faith, not losing their salvation, but just revealing the whole time that they did not belong to Christ or that they had other things that were more meaningful for them in life, and just from our perception, we didn't see it. But we also know people that still love the Lord, that are still, from everything we can see, born again. And it does not necessarily mean they're not saved, but because of things in their life, habits and freedoms and liberties, it, 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 uh, uh, it keeps them from, from ministry. Uh, and I think that's what we want to make sure that we're looking at today. Uh, like I said, this can happen to, to anyone, and uh, most of the times it's uh, uh, what, what you begin to see is liberties in someone's life hindering them from being useful to the Lord. And that's what Paul's warning about at this last, in this last little section before he moves on to the, the next question. So what we're going to look at today, we're going to look at four things very quickly. Paul's going to use the example of Israel and show how Israel's own desires, um, Israel's uh, freedoms, if you want to say it that way, uh, caused them to in, indulge in things that ended up wiping out that first generation. doesn't mean they, all of them were unbelievers, but it means they became useless to the Lord's 
the Lord's service, and he raised up the second generation to actually go into the land and be the kingdom of priests and the, the holy nation that he had set apart. And so that's a huge example. And so then he's going he's gonna to command them in the same way, dig these things out of your life so you don't walk in their footsteps. You've got to eliminate idolatry from your life. And then he's going to bring it right back to the very thing that we've been saying this whole time. Uh, you're striving to edify one another and ultimately want to exalt Jesus Christ. So here we are at the very end. Like I said, we're kind of going from uh, you know, examining our role or relationship with others in our practice of our liberties or freedoms. And now we're looking at, okay, are these actual liberties and freedoms and assessing our own minds and our own hearts. And so the first thing Paul does here in 1 Corinthians 10 is he brings up Israel. And like I said, this is almost like a, a brief overview of, of uh, what we're going to do as we jump into Deuteronomy. Uh, but this is very important. Uh, so he says here in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, he's recounting the, the deliverance of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Uh, he's showing how you know, God built them in Egypt, brought them out, and all the things that God did for them. Um, and, uh, and, and as he begins to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, as he begins to do all these things he promised to their uh, forefathers way back in the past. But he brings them up as a, for a purpose. He says, for I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. So don't forget this. Don't forget what we know of, of Israel. He says that our fathers were all under the cloud. And they all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the, spiritual, the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, with all but two. So when he says most, he means most. All but two. God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Think about that. All of the people that God did all of, that, all of those miracles for, bringing them out of Egypt, all of the things he did through the desert, always, you know, feeding them manna from heaven and, 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 uh, and, and giving them water that comes out of, of rocks and out of the ground. I mean, everything he did, in the end, two, two of probably two million walked into the kingdom and actually were able to be useful to the Lord at the very end. Now, again, we're not talking about salvation here. It doesn't mean that all of them were unbelievers. There was believers and unbelievers in the mix, just like there is with us. It doesn't mean that all of them are in hell. It just means that all of them minus two became useless and or you could say were disqualified from service through the things that happened in the wilderness. And that's what Paul's trying to bring up. The, the example is look at what happened to Israel and don't be overconfident or overassess your strength in these things because all but two the Lord wiped out in the desert. Uh, again, we'll do more of this soon as we jump into Deuteronomy. But just to give you a very, very quick uh, background, and you see all this happening in Exodus. Exodus 13, the Lord was going before them, a pillar of cloud to lead them uh, on their way, and a pillar of fire by night to lead them, uh, uh, to give them light, and they might travel by day and night. He didn't take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people, so God was with them. I mean, God was with his people. He called them, these were his people. Israel, and he himself was leading them. Uh, the angel of the Lord was there with them. It says, The angel of God who had been going before them, the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So, again, this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire is the Lord himself, and he's leading Israel. He's leading them through the desert. He's leading them out of Egypt. So, again, these are his people. Uh, and, and again, the cloud and the darkness were there. This is the presence of God there with them. I'm just trying to show you, it's not like these people didn't belong to him or these, he didn't love these people. Uh, these were his people. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord swept back the sea. Again, this is him leading them through the Red Sea. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on dry land. The Egyptians took up the pursuit. This is what Paul's talking about. Uh, the Lord looked down through the, 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 the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, and he sees the Egyptians go in. He confuses them, causes their wheels to swerve, and then he lets the water come back, and it crushes the Egyptian army, and the Lord delivered his people. Um, and so, I mean, basically his point is that God did all this for the nation of Israel. He got them out of Egypt. He established them. He met them on Mount Sinai. He gave them the law and all that. But if you know the rest of the story... I mean, things didn't go well for these people that he led out of Egypt. Uh, and in the desert, basically, they 
worshipped idols. They uh, grumbled and complained because of their own appetites. They did all these things, and they basically, in the end, the Lord uh, ended up destroying the entire first generation of Israelites that had witnessed his miracles and witnessed this deliverance and witnessed the plagues and witnessed all these, the separation of Israel from Egypt within Egypt and brought them out. I mean, it was unbelievable. So you think of all people, these would be the most faithful people. They're like, we saw it with our eyes. We watched the sea, you know, divide. We, we, we watched him give us bread out of heaven and water out of rocks. But, but even all of these that he took care of, they end up falling away or at least grumbling and complaining. They become useless for service. Going back to Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, so knowing what God did for all of them, he says, now these things happened as examples for us. Why? So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Look at Israel and don't go, man, I would never have done that. You look at Israel and go, I am exactly like them. Make sure that you're not doing exactly what they did after having all of these blessings. You know, all of us, I imagine, all of us would sit here and talk about how we don't deserve this, that God grabbed us and pulled us out of the darkness and, and breathed life into us. And then we have this brotherhood of saints that we come together and we have a wonderful church with great pastors and Darby leading music. And we're just, we're all sitting here going, we don't deserve this. How did we end up here? We're blessed beyond our understanding. And the Lord continues to bless us. And Israel probably would have said the same things about all the things the Lord did for them, bringing them out of Egypt. But make sure in the midst of all the blessing that we're not making the same mistakes that they made. And he said, this happened examples so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written, and people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. He begins to name specific instances uh, in the book of of Exodus and and, in Numbers uh, that the Israelites did to remind us. While God was meeting with Moses in fire and darkness on Mount Sinai, giving them the law, and they could see his presence from down there uh, below the mountain, uh, they began to worship a golden calf, right? They're like, where did this man Moses go? We haven't seen him forever. They call on Aaron. Aaron says, give me some gold. And they give him the gold. He makes a golden calf. And they began to do this. And when it says eat and drink and stood up and play, if you go and read the context, they're not playing baseball. They're not playing music. This is, this is immorality. This is wickedness. This is idolatry that they begin to practice. And they're, and they're making this idol, not worshiping Baal. They're calling the idol Elohim. They're calling the idol God. This is the God, Aaron says, that led you out of Egypt. So they make an image of God, the very thing that God is commanding them not to do. They begin to worship this image instead of God. Uh, and because of this... Uh, Moses calls the sons of Levi to himself, and they go through the camp, and they kill 3,000 of their brothers and friends and their fellow Israelites. And that was the judgment of God because of this that happened that day. Uh, there was more to it, but just to move on in the story for here. He goes on to the next verse to say, Nor let us act immorally. And I think he's bringing up these things purposely, because you can see all these things in yourself. Any of us can run back to idolatry. We run into immorality because of of liberties. He says, let us not act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. This is a reference to Numbers 25. On the plains of Moab, when Balak, the king of Moab, uh, hires Balaam to come and to curse them and prophesy against Israel, and God ends up using this this pagan prophet to actually prophesy about the coming Messiah and to prophesy that God is going to take care of Israel. Um, But then what uh, Balaam does is the understanding... God and understanding God, what God has commanded the Israelites, he basically uh, instructs the Moabites to, to intermingle with them and to c- commit immoral acts with the people because God's going to destroy them uh, in, in their immorality. And that's what happens. Uh, that This is when you have Phineas stand up and go through and pierce uh, the leader of the uh, Seminites with a, uh, that was with a Midianite woman in the act of immorality, and it stops the plague. But 24,000, it says, died because of the plague. Here he says 23,000 dies in one day. I heard one guy say that you know maybe it was 23 in one day and 1,000 more died the next day. Whatever it is or whether it's just a, a number thing in the Bible, it doesn't matter. The point is, is 24,000 people died because of immorality right there on the plains of Moab right before they went into the promised land. Again, it's just a reminder that, that these things that, that can be freedoms in our life can become things that bring the judgment of the Lord or make us disqualified from entering into his service. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 10.9 to say, Nor let us try the Lord, so test the Lord. As some of them did, they were destroyed by serpents. This, 
is a story that comes from Numbers 21. Uh, they they uh, were, were begging the Lord to deliver them from the king of Arad. Uh, the Lord delivered them, destroyed their cities, but immediately they began to speak against God, to speak against Moses and grumble and complain. And I mean, right after the Lord delivered them again and say, why have you brought us out of this wilderness to, to die here in the desert? There's no food. There's no water. We loathe the miserable food that God gives to us. So this, this grumbling and complaining. And the Lord sends fiery serpents among the people. It says they bit the people. So many died in Israel. Um, they, they begged Moses that they said, we've sinned against the Lord and grumbling and complaining. Will you intercede for us? Moses intercedes for them. Uh, and then, you know, tells them to make the, the, the bronze serpent. If they were to look at the serpent, then, then uh, it would heal them from the, from the venom of these serpents that bit them. And which is neat because then John later, or Jesus later, uh, talking to Nicodemus in John 3, uses this as an example of how people should look towards him for the forgiveness of sins. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing the Israelites could do to stop the poison from killing them. They had to trust what he said, which is look at the bronze serpent. And again, that becomes a, a type uh, of Christ later, where Christ says, they, you need to believe in me. You need to trust what I'm going to do and not in yourself. All that being said, bringing us back here, there was just a testing of the Lord, a grumbling and complaining, a discontentment in the Israelites, and the Lord destroyed many of them because of that. And then finally, he says in verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did, and they were destroyed by the destroyer. Again, this is referring to um, Korah and his rebellion uh, as they grumbled and complained against what the, the Lord was doing. Um, and uh, God destroyed 14,700 more after, the, after he destroys Korah and those who are with him. He destroys 14,000 more that were around him, all because of grumbling and complaining, all because he did, they didn't trust in the leader that the Lord had given them to deliver them out of Egypt. It was, it was just divisiveness and factions, again, which we know from Galatians 5 is just uh, uh, part of the deeds of the flesh. And so, all that being said, he's saying... God delivered all of them. All of them saw the miracles. All of them were part of the deliverance. All of them were Israel. All of them were God's people. Two of them made it into the promised land. God destroyed all of them, and they were all disqualified. They were all rendered useless. They were all passed over for the next generation because of all of these things. And Paul's point to the Corinthians is, and we do the exact same things. Make sure in your freedoms and your liberties that you're not doing the exact same thing Israel did, and God does the same thing to you. Eventually just passes over and uses someone else that is submissive, that is willing to lay down their life for others, that gives up their liberties and their freedoms out of a sake uh, or a desire to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and to preach the truth of Christ, and you just revel in your liberties for the rest of your life and you become useless. Does that make sense? That's what he's, he's getting at here. And so he sums it up by saying this. Now these things happen to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. So part of why the Lord put this in the Word of God is not only to show you His deliverance, His majesty, and His glory, and the things that He's uh, doing for Israel out of the promises He made for Abraham and all of that, and all how these, lead, these things lead to Christ, but they're an example for us. Because we have the same nature. We have the same tendencies. And, and you can't say... Well, I've seen, you know, I'm super well taught. We have really good doctrine. And, and I, you know, you can, you can talk about all your credentials and the blessings the Lord has given you. But so did Israel. They heard God speak from Mount Sinai. They were given the, the, the word of God written by his finger. You know, Moses was talking with him. I mean, you know, you talk about like experiences and understanding and knowledge. They had all that. And they all fell away. Or they, or let me say it this way. They didn't all fall away in the sense of they didn't belong to him, but they were all laid low in the desert, and they were unable to enter the promised land, uh, and only Caleb and Joshua went in. So he says to us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So this is written to us, the church. Therefore, and this is the point, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. The problem with the Israelites and the problem with you and me is we over-assess our abilities, and we think that we have strengths that we don't have. And we think we can endure things that we are not capable of enduring. And sometimes that comes through these things that we are liberties in our lives. But through our liberties, we begin to basically enslave ourselves back to, to former ways of living or to sinful things, immorality or testing the Lord or whatever it may be. And we end up rendering ourselves useless. And then comes this wonderful, wonderful promise and reminder 
No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but also with the temptation will provide the way of escape, so that you will be able to endure it. Two things to point out here. This is not God tempting someone to fail or to fall. The the word for temptation and testing is the exact same word. This is basically saying the Lord, Israel can't blame God for not making it into the promised land. God always tests his children, and he tests his children for their sanctification, for their growth, and for them to become more like Christ. Now, those tests, when internalized, and we begin to, to want those things in our flesh, this is what James talks about, when, when, when these things become lusts and desires, and, and we begin to internalize them and figure out how are we going to play this thing out, that's when they become temptations, and temptation is always meant to, to cause us to, to sin and to fall. But he's saying here, there's nothing that God will allow you to walk through. This first and foremost isn't common to mankind. So again, don't overassess yourself and think you're better than Israel. We're, we're, we're all prone to the same things. God is always faithful. None of his children will be snatched out of his hands. No one can separate us from the love of Christ. Even if we do dumb things in this life and it causes us consequences and, and things like that, still the Lord is faithful. But with the test that he allows, he always... He always brings the way of escape. And the way of escape, like he says here, is to endure it. The way of escape is, is not for it to go away, not to forget it happened. It's to walk right through the middle of it. And God always gives you the strength to walk through the middle of whatever test comes your way so that he can produce in you what exactly what he knows that you need in your life to be useful to him or to be sanctified and made more like Christ. God's always doing that. So this has nothing to do with a lack of, you know, uh, God's lack of faithfulness or God not giving you the tools or whatever you need to... God, God is faithful to make sure that we have what we need. And God only allows whatever test that we need in our life to grow in Christ-likeness. If we fail in that test, and it becomes a temptation that leads to idolatry or morality or whatever it may be, that's on us. Because we didn't, we didn't trust Him. We didn't uh, uh, submit to whatever He says... And on our own, and, and like I said, in the, in the context here is through these things that we would call liberties or we would call freedoms, we began to put those things over and above Christ. Those became our first loves, and now we find ourselves repeating the same mistakes or repeating the same things that Israel did back in the day. And so the whole point here, the main point of this first section is verse 12 there. Let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. That's what he's telling the Corinthians. Yeah, the meat's nothing, but make sure you don't overassess. Your strength in this thing. And make sure that you're not only preferring one another, and your first love is Jesus Christ and not meat, but make sure that this thing is an actual freedom and an actual liberty, and you're not doing the exact same things that the Israelites did before you. Again, this is sobering for all of us. Do not overassess yourself. In Hebrews 3, again, the writer of Hebrews reminds the Christians of the exact same thing. He says, today, if he says, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me. Same story, uh, same application. And they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. And as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's a warning here uh, to these Christians in Hebrews. Don't be proud and overconfident in who you think you are. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As long as you hear His voice, today is the day both of salvation and today is the day of sanctification, if you want to make that application for 1 Corinthians, and make sure that you're not testing the Lord with your either hypocrisy or a practiced secret sin or whatever it may be, that you're not putting the Lord in a place that you're testing the Lord and eventually the Lord's going to say, we're done. Now, this is going to continue to move forward in the book of Hebrews to talk about salvation. Uh, and it's going to talk about falling into the hands of the living God. And it's a terrifying thing that he's warning them about. In the context of 1 Corinthians, you make the same application to the church about being disqualified or becoming use, useless to the Lord in this life because of these things that you're practicing. Does that make sense? So, two different uh, applications, if you want to say it that way, but the same, uh, the same principle. Again, here in Hebrews, he starts going down that path. Take care, brothers, not any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Uh, Make sure you're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
Uh, it reminded me of this example. Maybe I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it real quick. Uh, there, there's a, a, a crazy example in uh, the life of Israel that the Lord allows us to see in Genesis 35 and Joshua 24. I preached a sermon on this a long time ago because I, I heard someone talk about this, and I went and studied it, and it was one of the mind-blowing moments of, oh, my goodness. Uh, but you begin to put together these things. When Jacob was coming back to the land of Israel after being over with, um, in Mesopotamia with uh, yeah, Laban and his family, He's coming back in. God had already promised Jacob, you're the one, it's through you that, that, that all these promises that I promised Abraham would come. But Jacob's coming back a different man. Uh, he's, I think he just wrestled with the Lord, right? Is that right before or right after this? I should have looked at the context. But the point is, is here. God says to Jacob, because of what Jacob is and what Jacob's family will become, he says, arise, go up to Bethel, live there, make an altar to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother you saw. So look at this. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods which are among you. He can't, they can't worship God and have these idols together with him. And so he tells his family, the 70 of them there, he says, put away the foreign gods which we have. Purify yourself. Change your garments. Let us arise and go to Bethel. I will make an altar to God who answered me in my day of distress and has been with me where I've gone, wherever I've gone. So he's, he's recognized the faithfulness of God, bringing him back, doing everything he said he would do. And look at what happens. So... What do they do? They gave to Jacob all their foreign gods, which he had, uh, which they had, and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them. Look at this. This is, this is what's crazy. He hid them under the oak, which was near Shechem. Okay? So in this place called Shechem, there's an oak there. Jacob bears these gods, and they basically purify themselves, and they go to the Lord. And this is the beginning of Israel. Um, and so uh, that's, that's what happens in uh, Genesis 35. Now, over 400 years later... Uh, uh, Joshua, after they've gone into the promised land, they're in Moab. Joshua talks to them, and he says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord. So this is, this is post-Deuteronomy. This is post-going into the land. This is right before Joshua dies. He calls them all together, and he says, uh, Now, fear the Lord. Serve him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods. Same call, right? Just like Jacob said to his family, here Joshua's telling the nation of Israel that now is in the land that God promised them. Uh, which your father served beyond the river in Egypt, serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight, serve the Lord. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think I meant more than just Joshua. This is the, the house of Israel. They must serve the Lord. And you would hope that the next line would be, so the people gave them their foreign idols and Joshua buried them, right? Just like in the other. But it's the exact opposite. The people answered Joshua and said, far be it from us. So here is your over-assessment and your overconfidence in who you think you are. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. We would never do that. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way which we went among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. This is the second generation, by the way. God's already wiped out the first generation. They have the same pride and the same overconfidence that their fathers had. And again, we see the same results right after the story because Joshua leads right into Judges, and Judges is awful. But So again, I'm showing you the heart of what Paul's saying. Paul's telling the Corinthians, do not be proud and think you are something that you're not. Look at Israel. You had the first generation that's wiped out, and here we have the beginnings of the second generation falling away from the Lord and Israel going into a, a horrible state in the book of Judges. But they're saying here, we would never do that. We, I mean, we, we were there. Do you know what we saw? We, the Lord delivered us in the most majestic and mighty way that you could ever imagine. We would never, ever forsake the Lord. The Lord drove out from before us all the people, even the Amorites, who, who lived in the land. They're in the land. He says, they say, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Wonderful doctrine. Great profession. But the, 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 the pride that was in it is displayed, both in what Joshua says here and in what happens to the nation after this. Joshua said to the people, and here's discernment. Joshua knows. He says, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for He's a holy God. There's a reason he's telling them, you can't. You can't serve God. It's the same thing Christ said later. You can't serve God and wealth. Pick one. You've got to pick either God or your idols. You can't do both. 
God won't allow you. And look what he says. He's a jealous God. Why would he call on God's jealousy? Because they still have idols that they're unwilling to relinquish. And Joshua's telling them, you can't, you're unable to do what you think you can do. And you can't do it because your, your heart and your mind, you have a double mind. And you're trying to serve both yourself, your idols, and God. He will not forgive your trans, the transgression of your sins. Now, again, think about that. God always forgives our transgressions when we call on him, right? But not when your mind, you have a, a double heart or a double mind or you have idols in your life. He's saying you can't be faithful to him and you can't fellowship with him. And you can't call out for his deliverance and his forgiveness when you also have your idols that you will not relinquish. He says, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and do harm and consume you after he's done good to you. He's warning them. If you keep, you think you can do something you're incapable of doing. And if you keep doing what you're doing, God will become very quickly the one who destroys you. Even though you're saying we will always serve him. Joshua said to people, he said, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourself the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. So he's saying, you're saying it with your lips. So then he calls them. So take action. You're professing to be followers of God. You're professing that you won't forsake him. Then do it. There's one thing that you got to do to start the, the whole thing. Get rid of your idols. And they say, he says, now therefore put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your heart. To the Lord, the God of Israel, There's, serve him only. But the people said to Joshua, again, it would have been so wonderful, it said, and then they gave, them, gave him their idols. He said, they said, we will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey his voice. And so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made for them a statue, an ordinance in Shechem, the exact same place that Joshua was standing with his family. I'm sorry, that, that uh, Jacob was standing with his family. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone, and he set it up there under the oak, which was by the sanctuary of the Lord that Jacob had set up hundreds of years earlier to worship God. I mean, it just gives you like tingles in your spine. And you just look at that and you go, oh my goodness. But that's you. And that's me. When we, in our pride, think we're capable of something that we're not. And in our pride, we're practicing things that hinder our relationship with the Lord. And hinder our service to him. And we call those things liberties and freedoms. And they're, they're, they're hindering our ability to be used by him. And to be in his service. And they're causing other brothers and sisters to stumble. Because of our character or our habits or the way that we're living. And this is a sobering thing for any of us. You can't read this and go, I hope somebody else is listening to this. This is you and this is me. And this is sobering. Do we have freedoms in Christ? Yes. Does Christ set us free from the bondage of sin and death and hell? Absolutely. Are we able to enjoy the things God gives us in this life? Things like meat, sacrificed idols, 100%. Because there is no other God and it's just meat. But make sure that we're not sinning against the brethren and sinning against Christ. Make sure that we're living in preference to other, one another and loving one another in these decisions. And secondly, make sure that you're not being proud and overconfident and who you think you are, and the things that you think are freedoms and liberties actually are, are causing you to run straight down that same path that these examples in front of us did. And like I said, and you know people in your own life, some in this church and some in other churches that are still born again, but have lived through the consequences that caused them to now be a useless voice, if you want to say it that way. doesn't mean they don't love the Lord, but, but there, there's, there's a lack of a lack of trust, a lack of integrity, a lack of character, a lack of something that has come through the things practiced in life that may have started out with liberties and became uh, uh, bigger deals, sinful things. And he's saying, look at Israel, don't make the same mistake. That's point number one. I'm going to go quicker. Secondly, he says, in light of that, do exactly what Jacob and exactly what Joshua said. If you're sitting there right now and you're like, that's me, then eliminate the idols. Get rid of them. Lay those things down. Don't just go, you know what? I'm going to double down. I'm going to follow God. I'm going to double down. I'm going to, I'm going to, God, I'm going to follow you no matter what. It's like eliminate the idols. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as the wise men. You judge what I say. So they, they, they're, they've already uh, uh, basically, I mean, they, they're talking about their wisdom. They're talking about their freedoms and their strengths. And he's like, you, you, you're wise, right? 
I'm speaking to wise men in this letter, right? So you assess what I say. He says, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread that we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So he's like, use some wisdom here. We're united to Christ, right? The church as a whole. Us as one body are united to Christ. When we do communion, which he's going to get into right after this, he's like, we're coming together going, we are saved, born again. We are, we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're saying that as a whole, as the body of Christ. He says, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices shares of the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. You may have the understanding there is no other God. You may understand that those idols are nothing. But those who are sacrificing to them and practicing these things, they are practicing something that is wicked to the Lord. They are practicing worshiping and serving something that isn't God. And that is always abhorrable to the Lord and brings about his wrath and judgment. And he's saying, ultimately, they're sacrificing to demonic things. The doctrines of demons, the things that don't belong, the things that come from, from, from the, the mind and the, the world of Satan. And he says, and I do not want you to become shares in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the uh, table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or, look at this, do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? So again, yes, you understand it's just meat. But make sure in your freedoms that you are not participating in something that not only would, would tarnish your, your reputation in your life here, but you're doing something that is that, 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 that bring about the, the wrath of the Lord. This is why I think the whole ecumenical movement is so wicked and sinister and evil. Because it's trying to marry together a sincere submission and obedience to the Lord with these other things that the Lord will destroy. And he's saying that here. So again, in your freedoms and in your liberties, make sure that you're not partaking of something that is wicked and evil uh, and, 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 uh, and abhorrible to God. And this comes back down to all these principles that we have in Scripture. As Christians, we identify with Christ. We're united to Christ. We're indwelt by Christ. We're reconciled through Christ. We're adopted um, by God because of Christ and we're an eternal family united forever in Christ why would we ever want to be identified with anything else sometimes our liberties can become our identities and I think, think about that this is something when, when I taught this in the college group I said I told them I was like if, if we were to go around this room and ask everybody in this room you know that, and, and I know we may not know each other as tight as the college group knew one another but, and, and we said if you could write down one word that this is what identifies this person, what would it be? You know, would it be baseball? Would it be video games? Would it be girls? What would it be? You know, because you would want it to be Christ, right? You would want people, if they looked at you, they said, that person loves Christ. That person follows Christ. That person can't stop talking about Christ. The, the, the center of that person's life is Jesus Christ. But then I, you know, I said, you know, look at yourself and if you were to write down one word that describes you, would it be Christ? And then, if we were to ask everyone in this room to write down one word that describes you, would it be Christ? Is that obvious to all people that your first love is Christ? Or are you identified by something else? Now, again, this is just a testing moment to go, what are the things that you spend the most time thinking about, doing, pursuing, uh, talking about with others? What are the things that you're identified by? Now, here, he's talking about being identified with things that are evil, that are wicked, uh, and they're doing that through their partaking of their liberties. And he's telling them liberties can be taken too far to the point where, um, you know, you, you can't recognize it anymore. It seems like a liberty to you, but everyone else is looking at it going, this is not a liberty. This is, this is your first love. This is what you are. And it, it does not look like Christ. Again, there, uh, Jerry Rag done at GIBC always talks about subcultures. You know, with anything we love, there's a subculture behind it. And the thing is, with those subcultures, that becomes your identity. You can like snowboarding. There's a subculture that comes with snowboarding that you can't be identified with. You can like rock and roll music. That's fine. But there's a subculture that comes with rock and roll music that you cannot be identified with. There's subcultures with, with many loves that you can't be a part of because there are philosophical differences and different loves and idols and pursuits that you can't have a part of, but it's so easy to slide into it or to not even see how it's infiltrated our thinking. Again, don't be overconfident. 
doesn't mean you have no liberties. It doesn't mean you have no freedoms. It doesn't mean you can only listen to this music and go to this place and do this kind of exercise. But it's making sure in the midst of your freedoms that you're not enslaving yourself to something that is actually either philosophically or religiously opposed to the very one that you claim to be a follower of, Jesus Christ. And it's easy. And any of the things that we love probably are attached at some level if you just dig it out to a subculture that we can't be a part of. And I think that's what Paul's getting at here. And again, you can only have one master. Christ said that. Second uh, Timothy, he, he, tells, he says, If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. That's what we want. He's telling Timothy, flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You want to be useful to Christ. You want to be used by Christ. We want to continue to be sanctified so he can do with us whatever he wants to do. We don't want to tell him, well, I like this, this, and this, and here's my hobbies, and here's my freedom, so use me in this way. You just let it, let it go and let him make you into what he wants you to be. And like I said, I mean, this is, this is convicting stuff. He, he goes on to, in Second Peter, Peter talks about, Okay, I gotta, I gotta move quicker here. But he says, you know, we are now partakers of a divine nature. We've been changed, transformed by Christ. We've escaped the corruption in this world of lust. And so he tells them, in your diligence, pursue moral excellence and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, brotherly kind, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. He says, if you're running down this path, it will render you neither useless nor unfruitful. The path of sanctification, the path of love, the path of laying down anything for the sake of Christ, that makes you useful to the Lord. That is the pathway of being, being transformed by Christ and used by Christ. But he says, for he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. I don't think he's talking about losing salvation here. He's saying, in, in, in this life, if we're not pursuing this path of diligence and moral excellence and godliness and love, then what we end up doing is become blind and short-sighted. We begin to crave the things that we used to talk about how we were delivered from those things. And now we're beginning to be identified with those things again. It's like, why would you run back to slavery when you've been freed from it? But again, look at, look at Israel. That's what they did the whole time. As the Lord was in the process of delivering them, they kept going, it'd be nice to be back in Egypt, you know? And, and we can do the same things. He says, therefore, make certain of his calling of you, his choosing you, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Uh, for in the way, the interest in the kingdom, eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. So again, I think the greater warning is these things can cause us to fall away from the Lord. I've already talked to you about Hebrews. You've got these terrifying warnings in Hebrews written to Christians that you need to read. And remember, when we're playing around with things that are sinful, but he says, you know, uh, anyone that's been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift. I mean, you've been a part of the church. You've seen this stuff. You've watched the Spirit work. You've tasted the good word of God. You, you've even longed for the return of Jesus Christ and then fall away. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And then he just hammers it down in Hebrews 10. If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. So again, that's terrifying. To let your appetites and your lust and your freedoms eventually cause you to fall away from the Lord completely to where there's nothing but the expectation of judgment after death. But bringing it back to Corinthians, that's not what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. He's warning them of becoming useless, useless within the church, because of your freedoms and your liberties. Thinking that you're something you're not, and in your pride, falling because of something that you could relinquish, an idol, to, to get rid of. And so, he tells them this. Eliminate your idols, get rid of the idols, and then he calls them back to the very thing we've been saying this whole time. Edify one another. Edify one another. Again, stop looking out for your own interests. Love one another. He says, all things are lawful, and this is, they, they think it's something that the Corinthians were consistently saying, all things are lawful, and they are lawful. It may even be something that Paul taught them. He says, but not all things are profitable. Yeah, it may not be a sin, but it may not have any profit to you or to others. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. So what should you do? Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. That's what he's been saying this whole time. Stop looking out for your own interests. Stop parading your own freedoms. Stop talking about all these things. And begin to lay down your life for one another. Look out for the interests of others. This is always the heart of Christ. 
Eat anything that is sold in the meat market. Look, again, he's coming back to the very beginning of the argument. Eat anything sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Is the meat fine? Yes. And just eat it. And enjoy it. Because God gave it to you. If if one of the unbelievers invites you and and you want to go, eat anything except before without asking questions for conscience sake. Again, you got a guy that worships other idols or whatever and he's an unbeliever. Just eat. Enjoy it. Praise the Lord. But... He says, but if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, you don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that which I give thanks? So again, he is, he is hammering down. We have freedoms. And it doesn't matter if another person thinks that, that that's, that's wicked. You understand you're free in Christ. But if he opens his mouth and says... Is this sacrifice to idols? Well, then guess what? You're not eating it that day. Because of his sake. Because you love him. Because it would be better for you to, to, to love your brother and to prefer him and to offend the person, the unbeliever or whatever it is, or you're at the meat market and you're about to buy it and you can't wait to get home and make this steak. And then your friend says, wait a minute. Is this meat sacrificed to idols? At that point, this brother and his conscience becomes more important than that stake. But again, this is, these are the things. You have, to, you have to make these choices. And you have to understand what is the, what is the, the, the highest route. What is the thing that we're, we're called to do? We're called to love our brothers. And we're called to lay down our life for others. And we're called to submit to one another's. And we're called to do all things for the edification of others. Actually, and that's what he says in 1 Corinthians 14. If you keep reading the letter, I mean, he says that straight thing. Let all things be done for edification. So, you're there, you're buying the meat, no brother there. Buy the meat, go home and eat it. You're there, you're buying the meat, dude says, wait a minute. Well, you, you, you move on, you find some meat that wasn't sacrificed to idols. And then you go home and eat the meat with your brother. Does that make sense? But all things are done for edification. All things are done out of preference for others. All things are done out of a love for others. And we have this admonition throughout Scripture, Ephesians 4, every word. Every word should be for the edification of others. You have to think about the need. You've got to think so that it will give grace to this person. Romans 15, those who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength. Not just please yourselves. Same principle, different context. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good and to his edification. Again, we lay down our liberties and lay down our rights out of a love for others. Philippians 2, this is Jesus Christ and the heart of Christ is what we're called to do. And out of selfishness or empty conceit, including your liberties and your freedoms, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who gave up everything for us, gave up his honor and his glory and, and his majesty to come and to become one of us, to enslave himself both to uh, his father and submission to him, and then to enslave himself to us. And we crucified him on a cross, and he did that for our good for our edification, sanctification, salvation, all of that stuff. So do that. I mean, if Christ can give up glory and honor, you can give up meat, right? If Christ can give up glory and honor and majesty, we can give up baseball. You know, Christ can give I'm just saying, apply it to your life. It doesn't mean you have to give it up forever. It doesn't mean that it's unholy. It just means you need to know. You need to think of others, and you need to make sure that this thing doesn't have a hold on you. And, and then at the very end, he gives us the, the main point here, which is exalt Jesus Christ. He says, so, here, here's what governs every thought. Every thought, everything you do. Whether you eat or drink or whatever, everything that you do, just run it through this filter. You do all for the glory of God. And give no offense either to the Jews or the Greeks or to the church. Doesn't matter who it is. That's everybody. Give no offense, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many. Just like you saw when I was here with you, I give no offense. And I live my life in Corinth for your profit, for your edification. I denied myself the entire time I was here purposely so that you would grow in the Lord. And I'm writing this letter to tell you this. Be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Like I said, when we started this, that's, a lot, that's hard for us to say those words, right? Because you look at yourself and you're like, I don't know if I'm a very good example. But the point is, is be a good example. 
Lay down the things that are causing you to think that you're not a good example and be an example of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Prefer others. Give no offense. Seek the profit of many rather than your own profit. Do all things for the glory of God and then be able to say to others that are struggling with, with this, this issue of liberties and freedoms, follow me as I follow Christ. But again, it's one of those things where if you really look at your life, and I'm, I'm speaking of me too here, and you go, what, what am I giving up for Christ or for the sake of others? What, what, what restrictions do I place on myself in this situation or in this situation or with these people um, for their sake and for the glory of Christ? And, and a lot of times it's, like, it's, it's hard to fill in that blank, right? Because we're not thinking like that. And our main thought is not the gospel and it's not the sanctification of, of one another. And it's not to make sure that I'm preaching the truth of Christ and I'm being useful for the Lord a lot of times our main thoughts are, what am I free to do? What do I want to do today? What are the things that I enjoy? And how can I continue to pursue those things? And that's what Paul's getting at here, is lay that aside and go, am I living faithful to Jesus Christ first and foremost? Am I speaking, living, eating, and whatever in a way that glorifies him? And am I striving to give no offense and to prefer one another over myself? Or is our motivation the opposite? It's, I wake up, I have my quiet time, all right, what can I get done today and what do I want to do and what's going to be pleasing to me, you know? And again, he, he just said at the very end, eat the meat. He's not saying you have no freedoms. He's not saying don't enjoy the things God's given you. But he's saying there's a filter that that enjoyment needs to run through every single time. Is this glorifying to the Lord and this loving my brother or my sister? And if you can say yes to that, then eat it and enjoy it and thank the Lord for what he gives you. But if you don't have that filter, then put that filter on before you think, talk, make decisions, and, and do things, and strive to live in a way that glorifies Him. And so, yeah. So, again, I think that the main thing here is just make sure that the things that we call liberties and freedoms aren't actually becoming idolatry, and we're not following in the footsteps of Israel um, or those who've walked ahead of us, and we've seen the consequences in their life because of little things that they love and enjoy that actually became things that hindered their, 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 their testimony or hindered their usefulness or even disqualified them from service uh, to the Lord. Because, again, all of us are capable of these things. All sin is common to man. But God is faithful. He is the one that gives us the strength to endure any testing uh, and to be made more into the image of Christ. Let me pray for us.